There's a place where lovers go to cry their troubles away, and they call it Lonesome Town, where the broken hearts stay. You can buy a dream or two. Well, hello. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And we're going to continue our read through of Stephen King's novel, It. And specifically, we'll be looking at chapters 15 and 16, which are both, um, well, both are, are mostly set in, in 1958 um, and deal with events in the very interesting uh, Ju- uh, month of July of, of 1958. Of course, like all the chapters in this book, it, it's really a frame story. Um, in fact, now that I think about it, almost every single chapter in this book is in some way a frame story, um, which, um, you know, I, guess, I think it's, that's an interesting aspect of it in the, in the sense that, you know, it, it allows King to do the time switches and deal with memory in, in very um, effective ways, I think. So um, let me think, what's going on in this chapter? Well, these two chapters don't go together that well thematically. I think I'm, I'm going to I'm kind of struggling thinking about a way to kind of tie these two chapters together. Um, they're set very close to each other in time. I think less than a week apart, at least the 1958 stuff. The, the frame stories are set moment, like hours um, between, because basically that's what's going on in the 85 timeline is all the losers are meeting at the library and telling, um, you know, stories about that that month uh, and they're all remembering different aspects of it and, and usually the way it works is when someone begins to tell the story the others start to remember it so it, it's kind of a collective act of 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 remembering that that month which is really all about setting up the confrontation with 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 it at the end of the month and then later on in august uh, which they're not even clear on what happened in august of 1958 that's the last pieces to fit into their mind in fact i think what makes the end of the book so good is how king shows their memory of 1958 is coming as they're in the sewer as they're encountering it they're remembering how they confronted it in 58 in kind of real time as things are happening that's uh, and it ends up doing the same thing in a way although it seems to have a better memory of the events of 58 than the losers did at least initially but uh, anyways, uh, the first chapter we're going to look at is called The Smoke Hole, and that is partially about its background. It's, you know, this chapter is really cool. It's really interesting. It's not as important, I think, as the other chapters in this part of the book, in part because it's really a way for King to explore its history and where it came from and what it is. I guess it's about the nature of it. Um, but it's, um, I guess it does give them some tools. I guess it does give the losers some concept of what they're up against and what it might take to defeat it. But, um, you know, I can understand why the film adaptations didn't bother including this aspect of the story. Uh, I guess the recent film version did try to throw in Native Americans in an awkward way, make them the, the origin of the ritual of Chud, which they really downplayed what it was in that book but 
they, you know, what I like about this chapter, I guess, is it shows the losers really as kids, just kind of, you know, believing what they read um, and believing stories about Indians, believing stories about Tibetans. You know, they're they're kids. They go to the library. They read the books that are there, and they they believe in the supernatural. Obviously, they're experiencing the supernatural too. But younger people just have a greater tendency to be um, to to have that incredulity about magic and and like the different things cultures were into. And and I have to think I I you know I like that stuff too. I was really interested in in the paranormal. And things like that and, and of course one way to get at that history and those stories is by looking at cultures that don't have the same worldview as 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 the west i think that's one reason kids like it so much is it is very very different right and that's another reason why kids read science fiction and horror and, and things like that or why richie is so interested in horror films there's uh it's not really escapism for the kids so much as it is, as it is they're they're continuing to try to figure out the world and the world is still mysterious to them, so they're going to believe in the supernatural a little bit more. Actually, this is another reason why you shouldn't age up the kids when you make a movie about this. Anyways, I'll try to limit my complaints. In fact, both neither of these chapters are in the, in the new film version, really. I mean, they do break Eddie's arm, but it's, um, that's the next chapter. We're going to look at Eddie's bad break. One of the most crucial chapters in the book. Um, but first, got to get through the smoke hole. So uh, in the present, in 1985... We're uh, getting stuff from Richie's point of view. Each of these chapters is from a different loser's point of view, obviously. Um, and he's been feeling this pain in his eyes all along, right? Like he thought it was something wrong with his contact lenses. And I think eventually he takes out his contacts and put on his glasses, another kind of uh, return to his youth, return to his past uh, symbolically. Um, but he realizes the pain he's been feeling in his eyes is a, a reoccurrence of the pain he felt when his eyes burned in the smoke hole that the losers made as children. So this is one of the first things that the losers do in their new clubhouse, which is, uh, you know, basically just a hole in the ground in the barrens. So we see that uh, four or five days after the the events of the album, uh, which was kind of really uh, a crucial event in setting up the climax of the book. But they're finishing their clubhouse and, you know, it's the heroes need a castle. That's why we have a clubhouse here. Again, it's, it's not crucial to the plot, but it's symbolically kind of like silver is the, is the steed of our, of our king. And of course they need a castle too for, you know, for the knights to hide out in. It doesn't, it does get used. It does become crucial in the plot in the, in the final parts of the book. Um, more so than like something like the dam or something like that. Um, it is kind of a, another example, though, of the losers collectively doing something, you know, pretty, you know, pretty striking. So anyways, they finish the clubhouse and Ben starts to tell them almost immediately. It's kind of abrupt, but um, Ben just starts to tell them about the smoke hole ceremony used by the Indians that he had been researching and reading about. And they begin to they prepare the ceremony in hopes that they will be told what they need to do to defeat it. That's basically it. They talk about how the Indians, I think it was the Plains Indians, used the smoke hole. Yeah, like when the tribe had a big decision to make, this, this, the Braves would go in the smoke hole. And 
it'd be a bit of a contest, see who could stay in the longest. And the ones who did stay in the long, stay in the longest would begin to have visions and those visions would help guide the tribe in what it should do later on. So that's the essential idea of, of the smoke hole. Um, and they just say, well, why don't we try it? Maybe we'll learn what to do. Cause they are a bit of a loss of what to do. They have an idea that is in the sewers. They have the idea of, I think by this point, the idea of the silver slugs is already in their mind, um, but they're not really sure how to defeat it. So they do this. And there's a wonderful uh, back and forth with Beverly and the boys where Beverly, they first say, Beverly, you have to wait outside because this is like a male only ceremony. And then Beverly's like nuts to that. And then they're like, but wait, we need someone to stay outside of the clubhouse because if we all pass out we could die down there so we need that security and so they i think they they light a match and so they have one black match one dark match and then the the all the other matches are unlit so that becomes like drawing straws and they all draw straws and and beverly draws the last one thinking because they all draw the unlit match and beverly thinks oh i'm going to be left behind anyways but she draws an unlit match too so there's a bit of supernatural here the turtle is somehow telling them they all need to be in the clubhouse so they all go down there um, and then they they gather up the green wood begin to burn it in the clubhouse and pretty quickly the clubhouse does become unbearable for some of the losers and i forget the order that they leave but it doesn't really matter because um they pretty much all leave except Ultimately, it's Richie and and Mike are the two that last longest in the smoke hole. And they are the ones who begin to have visions. And they are shown basically the origins of it, how it arrived on Earth and arrived in Derry. And basically, it is some kind of alien, some kind of entity from from outside of Earth, outside of their their reality. Now, Richie interprets what he sees as a spaceship, and I think Mike doesn't, he kind of withholds judgment, I think, on what actually it is. But Mike says it's a spaceship, but but that might just be how he's best able to interpret it. It's best how he can understand it. It's uh, it's kind of a Lovecraftian moment here, right? This is a, it's actually, this book is quite Lovecraftian. I haven't talked much about Lovecraft here because I do think King and Lovecraft come at these things so differently, but let's acknowledge that, um, you know, this is the Lovecraftian trope, right? Like aliens from other planets or other dimensions or other parts of the universe or either, you know, other universes enter our space and they're so different from us. We cannot understand them. We can only interpret them vaguely through through our minds. And this leads us to insanity or, or uh, terror of some sort. Um, for Lovecraft, even is enough just to see their architecture which I, that's a really funny Lovecraftian aspect of it, right? Like he's so interested in architecture. So in his mind, just alien architecture itself, things are so different from the gamble roofs of New England would potentially drive people to, to, to terror. Um, but um, here you definitely see the influence of Lovecraft in the, in the work, kind of like Color Out of Space almost, which is of course uh, an alien from some kind of alien entity. Uh, call it Cthulhu, right? Cthulhu, and, and that's kind of an alien entity too. So, anyways, a lot of a lot of throwbacks to to Lovecraft here. Um, but they're shown the origins of it, and then they leave, and then they wonder. They have these this kind of panic about um, about uh, 
can they defeat this thing? Could they even have a chance against something that's so different from us, that's so external to our even our universe? Now, they try to explain what they see. Um, Richie and Mike try to explain it to the others, and they say, it came from the sky. This is Mike. It came out of the sky, but it wasn't a spaceship exactly. It wasn't a meteor either. It was more like, well, like the Ark of the Covenant in the Bible that was supposed to have the Spirit of God inside of it, except it wasn't God, just feeling it, watching it come. You knew it was bad, and it that it was bad. Richie says, it came from outside. I got that feeling from outside. Outside where, Richie? Eddie asked. Outside everything. And when it came down, it made the biggest damn hole you ever saw in your life. It turned this big hillside into a donut just about. It landed right where the downtown part of Derry is. So uh, the geography of this is significant because Derry is it. It is Derry. And the fact that it lands right in the downtown, I think, is... Um, significant. Then Mike says, it's always been here since the beginning of time, since before there were men any, anywhere, unless maybe there was just a few of them in Africa somewhere swinging through the trees or living in caves. The crater's gone now, and the ice age probably scraped the deep valley and changed some stuff around and filled the crater in. But it was here sleeping maybe, waiting for the ice to melt, waiting for the people to come. That's the, uh, I guess that's a strange aspect of, of its history is if it does need this feeding every 27 years, uh, apparently it doesn't. It is able to hibernate for longer if it wants. It apparently was able to hibernate for a long time without people coming, right? But remember, when people do come, well, I get King, King doesn't fully explore like how, like if the Indians in that area, right, some Algonquins or something, had some history with the with uh, it, you know, maybe kind of like the Micmacs <laughs> from whoever their burial ground, of course, not far from here. Uh, if they had some history with it, but the first real story we get about it is the destruction of the entire colony, colony right? It's like a Roanoke situation, um, which I guess uh, influenced uh, King a little bit in, in conceiving of this that aspect of the story. But the point is it waited millions of years probably before people finally came for them to consume. But this first meal was a big one, right? Every human in the colony. So do we have any questions about this chapter? Well, um, I think there is this theme running through the second half of the book uh, with the ritual of Chud, with this, um, with uh, the history of it, that other cultures confronted it and came up with solutions. Um, now that's clearest with Chud, the ritual of Chud. And maybe that is also just what the losers kind of call this and maybe what the Tibetans were doing wasn't anything like this this entity but um, that there's a root in folklore um, some solutions rooted in there right so I guess we got these two customs that the or bits of knowledge that the losers rely on here so I, I think there's more to say about this I think King could have developed this a little bit um, and I think there's space to develop this if you ever wanted to revisit these themes or this this particular entity. I doubt he will. I know they're doing that series, right? Welcome to Derry, um, which sounds like it's going to be set all in, in in the in the f recent film versions timeline and set just in the previous cycle. So that would be set in the 50s or maybe the 60s. But who knows, maybe, I hope they do explore this deeper history a little bit. Um, but we'll see what they eventually do with that series, um, if I 
if I decide to watch. I probably will because I, I do like this story so much, even though I'm kind of disappointed with the way it's appeared on screen. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot to develop with this. Um, and of course, King is really sensitive to the experience of Native Americans um, and immigrants and, and different exploited people in the American um, story. Of course, you have African-Americans featured dominantly in this book, but you can think of like the, the land conflicts over the Micmacs and the burial ground and all that, which was overhanging that whole story of Pet Cemetery. But somehow the Wendigo seems somehow tied to um, Indian folklore, obviously, but and maybe that's also just an interpretation, right? The Wendigo is just how our characters understand it or how the Indians understood whatever entity there is uh, at work in the burial ground. But it's some, but there's a lot of time put in that book about like land conflicts and who owns what. Um, you have desperation where I guess that's more about Chinese immigrants um, so much. But yeah, I think there's some other examples, but they're not coming to my mind. But I think um, when King does this, when King looks at like the trauma of history, he's really good. He's really great. Um, and it's something I wish he would do a little bit more. He's so contemporary. He's always set in his books, like basically the time they're written. Um, and this allows him to kind of speak to current tensions and, and fears and technologies. And that's good. That's great that he does that. But but sometimes I like these deep dives into the past that he he's able to do from time to time. And in this book, we just we get more of it than we do in most of his works. But I, I think there's still could have been a lot more. But it's a long book already. Let's not complain about, about that. Um, do the visions tell us much about its origins and intentions? No, I think that's partially the point. Um, in fact, in some ways, this chapter may tell us more about the turtle because the turtle seems to be really guiding the losers to say, you must stay together. You must do these things together. You must know what you're up against. You must uh, know it's, it's external to us and the rules of our world are not going to apply to it. Um, and I think this chapter more than maybe others, we see the turtle guiding them. Obviously, the turtle's guiding them together and, and formed this quartet. But, uh, but here we see really clear evidence of, of the turtle directing them to do something. Um, and in this case, it's to do the smoke hole and to all go down with it. Um, and I think that's significant, too, is the losers all entering the smoke hole. Um, even though only two of them have visions, uh, which is fine because they can just share the story, but it has to be a collective experience. Even the conflicts with it, the, the climactic conflicts, and the one at the, the, the battle at Nebel Street is really Beverly and Ben uh, confronting it more than the others in the sewers. Everyone has a role in the sewer confrontation, um, but it's, of course, uh, Bill who, who steps up and engages in the ritual of Chud. So... Um, but there's still something important about the, their unity, right? Uh, if it would have been six people in the smoke hole, maybe the vision wouldn't have worked. Um, they learn about each other too. They, uh, they learn about, I think, Beverly's sensitivity about being the only girl in the group and her wanting to partake equally um, with the others. Um, so anything else? I don't know. It's a fairly straightforward chapter, I guess. It's it's not, you know, the next chapter, I think, is there's a, there's probably a little bit more to say about it. But Smoke Hole, a fan favorite experience, um, a fan favorite part of the book. 
and a great addition into like the folklore and legacy of of it so the next chapter is eddie's bad break um really important chapter um so it's really one of the most crucial chapters in the book for um especially for eddie's character um because it's the chapter i mean not um but it's involved in this chapter too even though he doesn't make much of an appearance it doesn't make much of an appearance um but it's certainly at work behind the scenes in this chapter um so how does this start well again we got the we got the frame story and so we 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 eddie introduces the story um and he he's thinking about medicine he's thinking about the pharmacist and there's this wonderful scene uh now we already know the pharmacist keen is a pretty nasty person that has been clearly established in the th third interlude chapter with the the shootout with the gang we talked about that a couple episodes ago so where do you know he's kind of a nasty person he's kind of emblematic of dairy and a dairy adults as being indifferent and and kind of violent and cruel for no reason and so eddie is finally like he sits down with the pharmacist and he, i think he's going for some medicine and the pharmacist sits him down and really cruelly informs eddie that he might be crazy um which is not a nice thing i mean he he's kind of frames it in like well you got to grow up this medicine is not real this asthma medicine you're taking is just water um and eddie begins to put pieces together here and realize that this is probably true and he really fixates on the fact that it says use as needed or something he's like well for medicine there's always should be a limit right and even even aspirin right says so, you know you could probably take tons of that and not be hurt but even aspirin says you know only take two an hour one an hour one every six hours or whatever it says uh, on an aspirin bottle but he says like if it's true medicine it wouldn't say just use as needed it would it would somehow limit that dosage based on you know studies of what's healthy and and if you know what's the limit before it starts to harm you all medicine has those side effects so he, he does kind of realize this. It's not really news to Eddie, but the cruelty here is how the pharmacist begins, like really systematically tries to inform Eddie that he's crazy and he's like got some kind of mental illness, which isn't the best way to deal with it, obviously. There is the issue with his mother. In fact, what's going on here is Eddie has been convinced since he was a young age that he's weak and fragile by his mother who needs that for some kind of psychological security she needs to feel that eddie needs her um so she basically has kind of a munchausers uh syndrome but projected on eddie right i guess it's called munchausers by proxy so usually munchausers is you pretend you're sick or you fake um, symptoms or you actually hurt yourself in order to get care at a hospital because you have that psychological need to to be cared for um, but in this case it's the mother needing to feel needed and the mother fearing uh, the friends, fearing others in the town are going to take Eddie away from her or uh, she won't he won't need her anymore. And of course, that's part of growing up. Right. I think that's one reason this chapter is so important is it really is talking about how growing up means getting this 
freedom from our parents. You know, Bev never quite is able to escape her father. Um, uh, we got, you know, quite a few of these parents live on in these characters' minds. If we could go through them one at a time, uh, Bill, he's dealing with the guilt over his brother and the projection of hostility by his parents towards him for the way, for the death of George. Uh, Ben's mom is just kind of overworked, working class, seems to be a good woman, but can't uh, really provide for him the way she might want to, uh, can't really be there for him, so she can only provide food, and that ties to his over him being overweight, and he has to deal with that as he grows up, right? We talked about that before. As he got thin, he had to confront his mom's um, behavior towards him. Richie's probably got the healthiest relationship with his parents. There's not too much to say about that. Mike has a very close relationship with his father that carries on in the story into um, Mike's uh, teenage years and and helps him under, you know, that relationship helps him understand it and Derry and Derry's history. Uh, Bowers's father, of course, is a huge influence on him, giving him, you know, his racist views, passing on the racist views by the generation. Um, I'm thinking about um, Torrance too, right? Danny Torrance. This is this is another very Lovecraftian thing, right? How you kind of got this legacy from your parents. But I think how what makes Lovecraft and King so different here is for Lovecraft, you can never fully escape your family, your burden, your your genetic legacy cannot be escaped from. But King, even for Danny Torrance, right? He's able to escape alcoholism, even though he falls into it. Um, who am I missing? Well, then you got like Bev, who of course never until the events of the book in 1985 is able to escape the abuse of her father. Um, and, and she's the only one who actually seeks out her father. I guess we don't know much about Stan's parents, but, um, Eddie's, it's the clearest example of this mother being a villain of the story more so than well i guess bev's dad too but you know there's just more time given i think to eddie's mother um especially in this whole chapter um so eddie lee eventually eddie leaves this meeting with the pharmacist feeling really hurt and upset and bothered by this and, and who wouldn't be right now as he leaves the pharmacy he gets into a fight with these vengeful bullies so the bullies clearly being motivated by it in some way to break up the group, um, get in a fight with him. So this is like the first confrontation between the bullies and the losers since the, since the apocalyptic rock fight. And that did give them some breathing space, but here that ends. It lasted like a couple weeks and the bullies confront Eddie. Um, they have a fight and Eddie stands up for himself, fights back, but in the process breaks the arm and later he's brought to, he's at the hospital and his mother confronts him at the hospital now there's some other events here i, I don't want to get ahead of myself is that while he's in the hospital uh it's not a very serious fracture it's kind of because i guess kids bones are still kind of kind of gushy kind of flexible right you get those those kind of fractures that come just from bending the bone too much it's not a total break um you know, a lot of kids have broken bones and recover fine from them. And that's obviously what Eddie is telling his mother when she freaks out about this. But it's a it's a severe enough injury that you can understand why Eddie's mom would kind of flip out about it. 
but it's also not the kind of injury that's going to take him out of the game in itself, right? Even though that's the intention of the fight with the bullies. I think the, the fight with the bullies eventually gets broken up by like a, an adult citizen who's like, oh, you shouldn't pick on, you know, five guys against one or four guys against one is unfair. And they, and he like threatens to call the cops or something and they leave. But Eddie ends up at the hospital. Now, at the ho- in the hospital, Eddie has a dream. And in that dream, he has a confrontation with his mom. And I think this is, he. I don't know if this is a dream. It's presented as a dream. But I think it's also maybe just him kind of groggy with the drugs in and out of consciousness. So he sees his mom breaking up the group, saying, you cannot play with Eddie anymore. Eddie needs me. Eddie's going to stay at home, get better. You know, he's fragile. All the, all the nonsense that Eddie's mom constantly repeats. But this becomes like the moment in which she's trying to also break up the group um, and lay down the law. And he's kind of seeing that, but he, he sort of thinks it's a dream, I guess. Um, but he also sees it, and he sees it sort of dancing. As, he sees it as Pennywise kind of dancing and doing kind of clown tricks in, in the hospital, kind of celebrating it. So it seems that this is an actual encounter with it. I, I don't think it truly was a dream, or at least it was partially rooted in reality, the way when we're dreaming or we're groggy or sleepy, we do the outside experiences do shape our dreams. Now, eventually when he's, when he comes out of this and finally talks to his mom and his mom's trying to tell him, you can't play with those boys anymore. That group, they're all bad. They're all troublemakers. They're, they're going to hurt you. They're going to kill you. Um, he stands his ground. And in standing his ground against his mother, he wins freedom to see his friends as much as he wants. Basically, he manipulates her, her own mental illness. So Eddie realizes that he can use his mother's needs and demands and, and emotional problems against her to get the freedom that he needs and the group needs because the group needs to stay together, right? So he basically says to her, like, I'll continue taking medicine. You can continue to take care of me. I, because he actually says, like, Keen told me this is fake medicine, um, but I can continue taking it. And that is the weapon he uses. He says, I know you have psychological need to take care of me and for me to be weak and me to be helpless. And therefore, um, I'll keep doing that. I'll play that game. I'll play that game, but. The cost is, is you have to let me continue to see my friends as much as I want. Um, so eventually the losers meet at the hospital and, and are allowed to see Eddie. And they begin to discuss their plan to make silver slugs out of Ben's silver dollars that he received from his father. So that's more or less the events of the chapter. But there's so many important things going on here, especially, as I said, especially with Eddie's character and his, his defeat of really three enemies. Or maybe defeats too strong a world. Like he confronts, he faces three enemies and all by himself. And I, I think this shows Eddie's bravery. It's really, a, you know, I think this, this bravery is always in Eddie's character. It's not like he just discovers it at this moment. It's always been there. It's just been sort of suppressed. Um, now, I do have a question, I suppose. And it's, it's another like aspect of the book. It's not as important as some of the other things that have bothered me about this book, but this one is still significant and it's there in my mind sometimes is, is why Eddie continues to be so such a hypochondriac into his adulthood, given that he, 
he knows there's a falsehood to it. Um, we, there's so much time spent in the scene, like the, the losers forgetting dairy, forgetting the past, but they're all carrying with them some burden from the past too, like, with, like Bev with her uh, tendency to go into abusive relationships. It's maybe that's the equivalent here. And, and maybe Eddie and Bev really are the, the most alike in this way, that they carry the most kind of psychological baggage with them into adulthood. But he has, you know, unlike Beverly, Eddie has a clear knowledge that he's been lied to his whole life. So why, when his mom dies, does he continue to be hypo, hypochondriac? Is it the influence of his wife? Who, of course, he, he, we're told explicitly he marries his mother or, you know, someone who physically and emotionally is like his mother, emotionally needy. So uh, that may be part of it. I, I think it probably is the answer somewhere in that. But uh, it also might be a way of connecting to his, you know, keeping one foot in his childhood, which, of course, is very crucial for the ultimate victory of the losers. Um, other things that come up in this chapter, I suppose the whole question of why Keen is so cruel to Eddie. Uh, we know from interlude number three that he's not a very moral person and he's part of the dark side of Derry. And maybe that's just what's going on here. Um, he's, you know, and I guess there's there's that aspect of of the medical profession. And Keen is on the outskirts of the medical profession, right? He's a pharmacist. He's not treating patients directly. But he's still significant. He's an important part of people's connections to uh, their, you know, connections to their care, right? But it's not like you're in a hospital bed subject to the, to, you know, the, the doctor's power, right? I mean, maybe this is just me being really anxious about doctors myself, but I don't like that feeling of, of kind of vulnerability and control and they have knowledge about you before you have it. It's, it's all, there's something kind of creepy about that, but it's necessary, right? It's a necessary evil that we have to work through. Um, Keen, um, maybe he's into that. Maybe he's part of that, um, you know, and for kids, adults can be scary, especially adults in positions of authority. And Keen's just kind of getting off on that. Um, but maybe that's what it's about. Maybe on some level, Keen does think what he's saying to Eddie is, is good for him. You know, the kind of 1950s style, like, you know, walk it off kind of, you know, that problem, you know, not really knowing what we know now about mental illnesses and trauma and, and anxiety and these kinds of uh, mental disorders and personality disorders and things. Um, so, but he does it in such a brutal way that it's, um, it's actually quite hard to read. Um, I, th I would argue that Eddie's relationship to his enemies, the bullies, his mother and it, all th those three, uh, do change over the course of the chapter. Uh, he confronts it. Um, it's kind of mocking him and teasing him and, and relishing the breakup of the group. But Eddie is able to kind of confront that without, um, running away or flipping out. He's, he, of course, he's in a hospital bed, so there's limits to what he can do, but he does, in a sense, stand up to it. He stands up to the bullies, uh, even at the cost of personal harm. In fact, he stands up to his mother, even at the risk of personal harm, realizing he's going to have to surrender some of his autonomy to appease his mother, but he's going to get out of that. Um, his The membership in the group is going to be assured. 
But, you know, most impressive might be how he does stand up to the bullies. Before it took seven and he loses, right? And that's, you know, that happens at times, you know, where you stand up to your enemies and you don't always win, but that's part of, that's what makes him so brave, right? I think. Um, what else? Uh, yeah, I think thematically there's something else going on here in this chapter. I, I think I highlighted the main points, um, but I think there's another, and that has to do with the concept of placebo. Keane talks about that this medicine you're taking is a placebo, and he defines placebo to Eddie and explains it to him that it's just mental. It's about belief, right? And I think, isn't this whole book about belief? The whole book is, is about how children can believe something that can be real. And a placebo works because people believe it to be true, right? And and that's magic. That is a type of magic. And I don't want to get into the medicine, uh, you know, the, the the actual physiology of placebos and how it works. But my understanding is that some people for placebos do solve some of their problems. It's not going to cure cancer, right? But it works for some people whose the manifestation of their, or they have diseases that manifest that are some in some way psychosomatic. That's my understanding is that's a real phenomenon for some people. Um, and belief manifesting into reality is, and that's magic, is what King is trying to say in this story. And, you know, that is how the losers struggle against it, is with belief, with placebos, right? Whether it's, if you remember, the, like the, the, the sneezing powder, the silver bullet, or the silver, sh silver slugs, I should say, not bullets. Um, that, you know, the psychic duel between Bill and it that we get at the end where he just repeats that phrase that's supposed to stop him from stuttering. These things become weapons. They become tools. And the placebo gets turned around in a way. It becomes a weapon against, that's being used against Eddie into a weapon to be used against their enemies. Right? So um, placebo, at the beginning of the chapter, the placebo is a threat to Eddie's confidence and security and belief in himself and his belief in his own sanity. But by the end of the chapter, the placebo is a weapon against his mother, gaining him freedom. Uh, and eventually placebos are going to be the weapons that the losers use against it. Um, I'd also say the attitude of the bullies seems to have changed since the rock fight, um, where the bullies are now targeting members of the losers one at a time, not trying to take them on as a group, realizing that the group is essentially can't be defeated. Um, and that's also its changing attitude, right? It sort of egged them on as a group, kind of told them, I'm going to kill you all. But it's going to try really hard over the next few chapters to take them out one at a, one at a time, if, if, if it can. It, does, it tries to do it with to Beverly twice, actually, is what we're going to see. Tries to do it to Eddie here through his through its proxies, um, but it's going to fail, obviously. But it's it's that's how it is trying to break up the group, and the same way the bullies are trying to break them up piecemeal. So I, I think that's the main things I want to say about this chapter. I um, I guess we see Eddie sort of being forced by outside entities to um, kind of. Uh, Kind of power up i suppose power up in terms of his of his bravery and his confidence and his abilities even though breaking his arm he's like he loses an arm but he gains so much more in his uh 
you know, in terms of psychological weaponry, but he's kind of forced by outside forces. And I, I think that's another thing that's so great about this chapter is just how at every step of the way, Eddie's alone and helpless, overpowered, you know, whether it's Keen, you know, as the authority figure, adult, berating him, essentially kind of mocking him and having fun with him, whether it's his mother or the bullies ganging up on him. It's always outside forces, but but Eddie stands up to them all. Um, yeah, I think I think that's it. So um, it's actually a little bit less than 100 pages just because of the way the chapters work out in this this book. It doesn't always work out perfectly, obviously. We'll make up for it in the next episode where I'll cover the final two chapters of part four, uh, the story of Patrick Hochstetter um, and the bullseye, which is kind of our climax to the July part of the story. And then we'll also look at Derry the fourth interlude, which is uh, a nice little addition to the to the lore of Derry. And it maybe tells us a little bit about Mike too. And then that'll bring us, then we'll have two more chapters after that covering part five of the book, uh, the climax. So we're, we're coming to the end out of 1100 page book where we're up to page 800 and ready for everything to finally really come together. I think, I think it's all climax from this time out from this point on, on out. Um, and I'm excited to share my thoughts about the rest of the book with you in the, in the, the coming weeks. So uh, that's all it for now. Uh, thanks for listening, and I will see you next time. Going down to Lonesome Town Where the broken heart stay Going down to Lonesome Town To cry my troubles away